turn there. Psalm 133. I have to give you time because it's only three verses. And if I start before you're ready, you're going to miss it. I see a lot of eyes. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, infallible word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this gathering. And thank you for the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us see it and long for it this morning in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, the older I get, the longer I lead in business, the longer I walk through life with my wife, Sarah, the longer I parent our children, the longer I serve in the church, the longer I do all these things, the more I long for one thing more above all else, unity. Oneness. Unity of heart and purpose. Unity is the sweet fragrance of every relationship, every endeavor, and every community. Unity sets the environment where we grow together as the people of God in our understanding of the gospel, in our understanding of the beginning and the end and everything in between. So here's where we're going to go this morning. In verse 1, we're going to see the nature of this unity. In verses 2 and 3, we're going to see the source and the supply of this unity. In the last half of verse 3, we're going to get a glimpse at the glorious future of this unity that we have as the people of God. The nature of the unity, the source and supply of this unity, and our glorious future in unity. All right, the nature of this unity. This summer, we've been on a journey of sorts, haven't we? As we've studied the songs of ascent, we've traveled with the people in our mind's eye, the ancient people of Israel, as they made their way, made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the three great feasts. And as we look at Psalm 133, we imagine that the families, the tribes, these caravans have finally reached the city of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to imagine the scene with me. Listen, imagination is extremely important. Imagine this scene with me. Imagine you are standing on Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, and you look out, and all around the city, families are setting up camp. There are hugs and smiles and laughter and singing, sweet reunion with old friends from different parts of the region, cooking and feasting, children running around chasing one another. They have all come for one purpose, to experience 
the presence of God in the place that he has ordained for them to worship him. Imagine the sights of the people. Imagine the smell of their dinners and the sounds of their laughter. Can you do that? Now look back at our text. Look at the very first word of verse 1. Behold. Behold. Friends, this arrival would have been a sight to behold. Take it in. Ponder its significance. Brothers and sisters, tribes and families, generations of those who serve the Lord are dwelling together for a common purpose. I dare say it was a beautiful chaos. A beautiful, at times, cacophony. And it reminds me of our weekly greeting time. Now, I know there are a few of us here who could take it or leave it. This passing of the peace. I understand. And I do not want to alienate you with what I'm about to say, but I love to watch our church greet one another. Now, most weeks I'm sort of half greeting or half taking care of some behind-the-scenes something. The, the live stream is frozen or, or we forgot the, you know, the prayer's mic, whatever it is. Most weeks I'm sort of half in, half out. But sometimes, when I can, I just stand back and I behold this beautiful sight. Men and women, boys and girls, hugging, smiling, sometimes crying with one another in a beautiful little six-minute chaos. And I love it. All happening around the common bond we have in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're the type of person who would be happy if no one came to greet you, I'm going to give you a way. Listen, this is a gift. This is a gift. I'm going to give you a way to actively participate in our greeting time. Rather than silently enduring it, just stand up and watch it. Just behold it. Behold the beautiful, beautiful little chaos that we create. And remember the spectacle that must have been the city of Jerusalem when the pilgrims arrived. But it's not just the gathering of the people that David is asking us to behold. No, there would have been gatherings like this all over the earth, albeit for different purposes, but they would have looked similar to this one. It's not the gathering per se that David wants us to behold. It's what lies behind it. David is saying, behold the unity. Behold all of these people coming together for one purpose. They weren't there to check on the real estate deal. They weren't there to shop at their favorite market. No, the people had come to worship the one true and living God. So whatever else may have been true of them, of their relationships, of their divisions and grudges, for this moment, there was a unity of purpose, worshiping God. And in verse 1, David uses two words to describe this dwelling together in unity of the brothers. He says that it's good and it's pleasant. Now that is not a redundancy he wasn't just trying to fill up verse 1. This unity is good and pleasant. This week I watched a video of John Piper. I don't know if you've ever seen John Piper with, like, um, with a little pen that writes on a screen, but it's like, calm down. 
Uh, he's all over the place. But he's so good. He's so good. And what he said about this verse really helped me. Uh, if you're taking notes, I want you to, this is from Piper, I want you to write the word good on the left side of your paper, okay? And I want you to write the word pleasant on the other side. I can't remember where I started. If God tells us something is good, there's an ought connected to it. O-U-G-H-T, ought. That which is good is what we ought to do. And then that which is pleasant, on the other hand, is what we want to do. Or you could say it that that which is good is what God requires us to do, and that which is pleasant is what we rejoice to do. And finally, uh, Piper said, that which is good is our duty, and that which is pleasant is our delight. I just found that to be so helpful as I studied this verse. So if you're taking notes, under good, you ought to have something like, ought to do it, required to do it, it's our duty to do it. And under pleasant, you would write, we want to do it, we rejoice to do it, and we delight in doing it. Friends, there are many things we could say about the doctrine of sanctification, but right here is a summary of it. It's when the Holy Spirit turns God's oughts into our wants. You know the Lord is sanctifying you when to your utter surprise you find that you rejoice in what God requires. You know the Lord is working when your duty to Him becomes your delight in Him. Guys, that's sanctification. When David stands back to see the people dwelling together in unity, he sees both good and pleasant. And what you have done this morning is good. Did you know that? What you have done this morning is good. Like the tribes going up to Jerusalem, you have left your homes this morning and you have traveled, albeit with far less effort and more showering. You have traveled to the place where God meets people to worship him. It's good and it's right that you have done so. As you look around this room, I hope the gathering has been and continues to be pleasant to you. But now let's move to the source and the supply of this unity. What is the source of the unity and how widespread is it? How enduring is it? How deep does it run in the hearts of the people? Look at verse 2 and 3. David gives two word pictures to highlight this good and pleasant unity. And embedded in these two pictures are the source and the supply. Look at verse 2. David says this unity is like the precious oil on the head. Running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now that's weird, isn't it? That's okay, you can admit it. It's a little weird. Look at that phrase, the precious oil. This is in reference to the anointing oil. Don't get bored, this is the, this is the spot where you're going to get bored. Just hang with me, Okay. This is the anointing oil that God instructs to be made for the anointing of the sanctuary and everything in it and the priest to set them apart for a holy purpose. Now, if you want to read about that later, just jot down Exodus 30. Okay, It's in Exodus 30. Here's a summary. Now, these are rough numbers based on modern conversion factors of ancient measurements. Okay, 
So don't hold me to this. But this is close, I think. This oil was made from about 14 pounds of liquid myrrh. And about 7 pounds each of what the Bible calls sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic cane, and cassia. And through some process, all the dry spices were mixed with liquid myrrh and about five quarts of olive oil. Can you imagine mixing that up in your kitchen? To be sure, your house, if it were large enough to handle the onslaught of fragrance, would smell pretty pleasant. God instructed Moses to anoint the tent of meeting, the contents, and the priests with this precious oil. And listen, if anyone tried to make an unauthorized mixture of it, or if they were to put it on any ordinary person who wasn't a priest, God would command that they would be cut off from the people. This oil was special. And it was only used for a very specific purpose, to make holy that which was in the presence of God. David sees this holy gathering in Jerusalem, and I'm saying that it ties to this holy gathering that we have this morning. And it gave him a vision of the original anointing of the high priest Aaron. The anointing of Aaron was good because God instructed it, and it was pleasant. It was pleasant. The oil itself was pleasant. The idea that people would be able to approach God was pleasant. It was pleasant because what it had signified, that God had made a way for his people to approach him in worship. God had provided a way to mediate between himself and sinful people. The anointing of Aaron and the tent of meeting was good and it was pleasant. Now we're going to get to the source and the supply in just a minute, but first let's look at the second word picture, okay? Look back at your text. Verse 3 holds the second word picture. David says, this dwelling in unity of God's people, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now again, stay with me, stay with me. What follows is not unimportant or I would have cut it from the sermon, okay? Mount Hermon is the tallest peak or was the tallest peak in ancient Israel. And I was, I was studying the sermon for the sermon. I learned something about mountains, you would think, I live on a mountain, I would know plenty about mountains. I didn't know anything about mountains, okay? The first, there, there are two important heights when you're talking about a mountain. The first is the height above sea level, okay? The height above sea level of, uh, of Mount Hermon is around 9,000 feet, okay? It's pretty tall. But, but height above sea level is not really the thing that makes a mountain. What makes a mountain is its prominence. Prominence is the relative height of the mountain compared to all the surrounding landscape. Do you understand that? All right, let me put it in, in terms that we're going to really get. We're going to grab hold of. The official height above sea level of Signal Mountain is about 1,700 feet. Pretty good. The height of Red Bank is about 700 feet. What does that mean? The prominence of Signal Mountain is only about 1,000 feet, okay? Still looks big from Red Bank. It's about 1,000 feet. The prominence of Mount Hermon is 6,000 feet. 
6,000 feet. If you stood at the base of Hermon and looked up, you would see peaks six times taller than Signal Mountain when you're standing in Red Bank. In the mind of Israel, Hermon reached significantly toward the heavens. And the dew of Hermon, listen, this is, the, this is the image that David really gives us, the dew of Hermon. Most of the year, the mountain is covered in ice and snow. Mount Hermon is a rich source of moisture in an otherwise dry climate. It has plenty of what everybody else has little of in the region, water. And if you look at a picture of Hermon on, on Wikipedia later, you're going to see it covered in snow. It looks completely out of place. It looks like it doesn't even belong there. But David says when he sees brothers dwelling in unity for a common purpose, it is like the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. But Hermon is about 120 miles north of Mount Zion. And a simple, straightforward reading of this text creates an apparent problem for us. David knows the dew of Hermon does not in any significant way fall on or touch Jerusalem. He gets that. So why is he saying it? There's a number of possible explanations to this question. I read a bunch of commentaries. I could not find the same answer twice. That's always disturbing. So, so I just kept studying, and this is what I think seems to be the most plausible explanation of why David would use this imagery. Ima so here, imagine you're a mom of an eighth grade boy, okay? Can anybody relate? I know there's a couple that can. All right, imagine you're a mom of an eighth grade boy who plays basketball. For whatever reason, <clears throat> you have to stay home and miss the basketball game, Okay. Around 8.30, your husband and son come, come home and you say, Hey, how did the game go? And your son replies, Terrible, we got obliterated. And then he storms off to his room. And, and you look at your husband and he says, Yeah, they had this one kid who wore us out with the range and the accuracy of Steph Curry. You understand Steph Curry did not play in the game, Right? What it, your husband means is some 12-year-old punk on the other team shot 46% from 30 feet. That's what he means, right? I think David is using the same kind of hyperbole here. I think David is saying when brothers dwell in unity, when the people of God meet for the purpose of worship, it's as if a Hermon-like dew has descended on Jerusalem, refreshing the city and her people. You see, both of these images, the flow of the anointing oil, the falling of a Hermon-like dew, both of these images highlight two things, the source and the supply of this blessed unity. Look back at verse 2. Where does the oil come from? And we know how it's made from Exodus 30, but in the image, in our psalm, where does the oil originate? It originates above Aaron, doesn't it? It's poured on his head from above, and then it descends down his beard, and down the beard onto the collar of the robes. The supply is plentiful, and the source is from above. Now, it's not, we don't have to imagine a bucket of oil here. It's not as if someone just 
just doused Aaron, but the oil on Aaron's head is more than enough to do the job. It's more than enough to do the job. It's more than his hair can absorb or hold. It's more than his beard, and those were some beards. It's more than his beard can hold. And it runs all the way down his face onto the collar of his robes. Now look at verse 3. We see the same idea. You see the word falls in verse 3? It's the same word as running down and coming down. It's the same from the same Hebrew root. Yerath. It's running down Hermon onto Jerusalem. You see, David is continuing the theme. In verse 3, the dew, which is a blessing of unity, it's like it begins in the clouds at the top of Hermon. It flows down, it falls even on the mountains of Zion. This blessing is from God. It flows down to his people in abundant supply. Here's the point. We cannot manufacture the type of unity David sees and is rejoicing over. It ain't in us. We can't manufacture it and God doesn't ask us to. We can no more manufacture the type of unity David sees than we can in our own effort throw buckets of water at the side of Hermon and cover her caps with snow. It's a work of God. Unity in the church is a work of God. Unity among his people flows down from God and it overwhelms us. It's, the, it's sources in the mercy of God and its supply is more abundant than the dew of Hermon. It's more than adequate, like the extra oil flowing down Aaron's face. Summary. The unity of the people of God is good. It is pleasant. It comes from God and it is more than enough. It permeates all of worship and all the life of the church, or it should. You see, at this point, those of us in the room who are honest with ourselves are having a bit of a crisis, aren't we? The families with young children may not have experienced any sort of unity of mind this morning as they made their journey to the public gathering. It was chaos, but it wasn't beautiful. And there are empty nesters like Lane prayed for in the congregation whose homes and hearts missed the noise of their teenager running into furniture on their way to slam the refrigerator door. The house is too quiet. And the marriage that's left behind... for so long had been more partnership than romance, seems anything but unified. And no matter what state you arrived in this morning, some of you entered a room of old friends with whom you have painful, unresolved conflict. And some of us looked around the room and our hearts broke again for the hundredth time at the people who were not here. And when the greeting time came, you lamented the joy you saw in the faces of others, not because you don't want them to have it, because it has been so long 
since you've experienced the unity for which you long. Friends, let me say this to all of us hurting this morning. Jesus Christ intends his church to be unified. In all its brokenness, longing, pain, and hopelessness this morning, hang on for hope. Jesus Christ intends for his church to be unified. You see, those fleeting times in the history of Israel where God's people were truly unified in their worship of the Lord, they were few and they were only a foretaste. The unity of Israel was based mostly on promise. For example, the good and pleasant ritual of anointing Aaron and the tent, it it signified promise. The blood of bulls and lambs never ultimately or actually cleansed a single sin. They were unified around promise. It was a promise that one day God... One day God would provide a true, good, and pleasant unity with his people. One day the unity would not be based on promise, but fulfillment. Friends, our unity is based on fulfillment. Let me say it this way. Listen, the church of Jesus Christ right now, no matter what it looks like, right now across denominations, across national borders, even across time and space, the church of Jesus Christ exists in a state of perfect, permanent unity in Him. We are in union with Jesus Christ. He is the head. We are the body. We just studied this in the book of Ephesians here here at the church. If there's anything we took away from the book of Ephesians, it's that we are one in Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ has torn down every dividing wall. It tore down the the curtain between God and man. It turns down the wall between man and his brother and sister. We, his people, are one. We have what you might call a forensic unity. Out there. Out there. But we don't only want it out there, do we? We want it here. We want to experience this kind of beautiful, good, pleasant unity here. In this local church and in the church across the world. We want to experience it. So let me ask you a question. How serious do you think God is about the unity of his church? How serious? Scale of 1 to 10. How serious is God that we would be unified in Christ? What do you think? At least 10, right? This is how serious he is. In John 17, we get to eavesdrop on Jesus as he prays the night before his crucifixion. And what do you think was on his mind? Well, plenty. But listen to what he prays for us. I'm reading from John 17, 20 and following. The moment we break into this prayer to listen to Jesus, he says he's not only praying for the disciples, he's he's praying for us in this room. And you'll hear it as I read. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these, the disciples, these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for us. And this is what he prays. (laughs) That they may be one. 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one. Even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be, listen, perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. How serious is Jesus Christ about the unity of his church? It dominated his prayer before the crucifixion. Dominated it. And he points, this is the amazing thing, he points to our oneness as the evidence that the world will see in order to believe in him. The testimony of our love for one another is the testimony of the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, this unity is not an optional entree on the menu of church life. It's the fragrant spice that permeates the air of the whole restaurant. Unity is the fragrance that makes what we're doing here beautiful and pleasant. Because of the work and the prayers of Jesus Christ, there is hope for a true, deep unity in the church. But let me say to all of us, though we cannot manufacture this unity, we can actively work against it. The devil is working against it. The world is working against it. In our flesh, we too can work against it. And this is how it happens. We take our eyes off of Jesus and we turn them in on ourselves. Our preferences. Our grudges. Some of us are the agitators of discord. Some of us are the victims of discord. Most of us are both. Most of us are both. And it won't do us any good to pretend it's not true this morning because we want the unity that David saw that was so beautiful. We want it in this room on Sunday morning and throughout the week. But I want to tell you something, and it's wonderful. There is hope, there is forgiveness, there is restoration in the wake of our divisions and our dissensions. Listen, this is important. Examine your own heart as I read this. It can be so easy to drift from care to gossip. It can be so easy to drift from seeking excellence to demanding perfection. It can be so easy for us in the context of the local church to drift from unity to division. And let me say this too. There are times when unity does not look like unity. Sometimes it looks really hard. There are times when a brother or sister must be confronted. There are times when a leader has to be held accountable. But thankfully, thankfully, God has not left us to our own devices or our own wisdom when it comes to confrontation. And reconciliation. I don't have time to go there this morning, but look at Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Jesus shows us a model for conflict resolution. 
We should run to this. Friends, we should all memorize Matthew 15, uh, uh, 18, 15 through 20. We should all memorize it and live by it because the unity of this church is so important to God and it's so necessary for us. And, and I won't go there either, but in Matthew 5, Jesus essentially says, look, if you come to worship and as you're, as you're about to offer your, your gift, you remember that your brother has something against you, put the gift down. Leave church. Leave church and go reconcile with your brother. Because unity is a necessary, it's a necessary fragrance in a holy gathering. I want to end this section of the sermon with three points of application. Pray for the unity of the church. Pray for the unity of the church. This one and the larger church as a whole. To recognize and remember that the unity of the church is a crucial part of our witness to the love and work of Jesus Christ to the world. And finally, when you find, not if, not if, when you find yourself working against the unity of the church, repent, believe the gospel, and reconcile. You're not alone in this. Your pastor your elders, your brothers and sisters in Christ, they want to help you reconcile with your brothers and sisters. That unity in this room could be fragrant, good, and pleasant. Jesus has done all the work to make us one. Pray he enables us to dwell together in oneness. Well, this third and final point, it's short and it's to the point. Jesus Christ, by his cross, has won a people for himself, us and others. He has won us. We will be one. We are one in him out there, and we will be one here, and in the future, we will be one perfectly. Now, in the present, listen, in the present, even in a fallen world, even with the lingering strife of our old sin nature, even with our failures to love one another well, even now we can experience good and pleasant unity as the people of God. We can, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We should acknowledge that God has, has supplied it. By the power of the Spirit working within us, we should seek it and live in it. And when we see it, when we see it, behold it and rejoice in it. But one day, <laughs> one day the imagery of Psalm 133 will be utterly inadequate to describe the unity that we have. As Jesus prayed for us in his high priestly prayer, there will come a day when we are in perfect unity, not just out there, but in here. The unity of Israel in their worship, like I said, was only a foretaste of the perfect unity we will one day have when the kingdom of Christ comes in its fullness. Practice the unity and the peace of the church because, friend, that is your future. That is your future. <laughs> Look back at the second half of verse 3. David says, there, the word there, that is Mount Zion 
in Jerusalem, where the, where the city of God is, where God dwells with His people, there God has commanded a blessing for His unified people, and this is it, life forevermore. One day we will stand as the new Jerusalem, the dwelling of God, and we will experience life forevermore. God commanded this blessing for His people. Listen to Revelation 22. This is verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light nor lamp of the, or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. And ever, friends, that will be a blessed unity. So let's practice it here. Each week as the Spirit enables that others would look in those back doors, that they would come in, they would hear the singing, they would see these people, us, we, loving one another. And that that unity would be a fragrant example of the love of Jesus Christ. And that they would come in and join the caravan as we travel to the city of God. Let's pray. Father, seeking unity is dangerous business. Sometimes we would prefer a dull, consistent ache to the hard work of unity. Lord, give us courage. Give us courage to confront. Give us courage to repent. Give us courage to reconcile. God, I pray someday I would see someone run out the back doors of this church, longing because of what the Spirit of God has done in their life in that moment to reconcile with their brother. Lord, give us a real life. A real life in Jesus Christ, a unified life, a, a hard one, unified life in Jesus Christ. Give us courage to live in it and give us hearts to rejoice in it when we see it. Let it be something to behold to a watching world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.